Well, our world certainly suffers from fatal misconceptions about the Lord Jesus Christ. Some say he's just a good teacher. Others say he's an example of humility, an example of sacrifice. The world as a whole doesn't take Christ seriously at any level, really. And most definitely, there's no fear of the Son of God. Nobody thinks of Jesus that way as far as the whole world is concerned. Instead, the world continues on its sinful path of self-destruction and it is absolutely oblivious to the coming dominion of King Yeshua, of King Jesus, the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. In our first message this morning, we looked at the king and his people. In this message, I'd like to look at the king and his dominion. As directed from heaven, the earth is going to begin experiencing the time that Jesus described in Mark 13, 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The birth pains of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are beginning. This is the time that Daniel 12 says, There, will be, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since... There was a nation till that time. Jesus gave a name to this time. He said in Matthew twenty four twenty one, for there will be a great tribulation, such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Let's go back to Revelation. We'll be in chapter six now as we look at how the Lord Jesus Christ, like a great commanding general, is going to soften the earth for his return by pouring out the judgments of God in what is called the tribulation period with the second half of this seven-year time called more specifically the great tribulation. Now before we get into the text, it's important that we lay down two cornerstones, kind of two foundation stones to help us understand Revelation 6 through 11. So bear with me while I take just a few minutes to place these cornerstones of understanding. For the first cornerstone, the place of the church in the Great Tribulation, and the second cornerstone, the Old Testament background to the Great Tribulation. So the first cornerstone, the question is, will the church of Jesus Christ, as it is today, go through the Great Tribulation? And we would have to say no. And I want to just make sure that you have this comfort Scripture teaches a pre-tribulational rapture, a taking up of the living church. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches clearly at the cry of command of the Lord, the dead in Christ will be resurrected and those believers who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Let me give you a few reasons why we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. This is so important to understand the rest of Revelation few reasons first of all the church never experiences wrath the church doesn't experience wrath the wrath of god now you might say what about those who come to faith during the great tribulation well first of all they're not part of the church age and second of all revelation teaches that although they may be persecuted by men they will not be destroyed by god revelation 9 tells us this and so the church doesn't experience wrath Why is that? Because the wrath of God was poured out on Christ instead of on us. There's another reason we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, and that is the biblical pattern of removing believers from the sphere of judgment. The biblical pattern of removing believers from the sphere of judgment. In Egypt, 
The plagues fell on Egypt, not on Israel. Lot and his daughters were saved from Sodom. Noah was saved from the flood. God didn't tell Noah, I hope you can swim. He had a way out for him. Rahab was saved from Jericho. That's the biblical pattern. Those who believe in God are removed from the sphere of judgment. We have another reason, the comfort in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the believers will not go through the wrath of God. That's the whole point of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, to comfort one another with these words. The events with believers in every tribe, the events of believers in heaven are represented by every tribe and tongue and nation during the great tribulation. What does that tell us? It tells us that the church is there. The church is there. There's another reason. The marriage supper of the Lamb either happens or starts in heaven in Revelation 19. Why? Because the bride of Christ, the church, is already there. I mentioned this earlier, but the church disappears from mention after Revelation 3. We're gone. The book of Revelation begins all about the church, chapters 2 and 3. After chapter 3, we don't see us at all. There's not one mention of the church. It's almost like we disappear beginning in chapter 4. Why is that? Because we did. A post-tribulational rapture. Here's another reason. A post-tribulational rapture serves no purpose at all. There's no spiritual purpose. If the church is on earth, and even if the church was miraculously uh, protected, a post-tribulational rapture serves no purpose. You go up, you say hi, then you come back down. Is that what it is? Some have called that boing theology. You go up, boing, and come back down. No purpose at all. How about this reason? There is not one single New Testament verse that warns Christians to prepare for the great tribulation. Not one. We're told to prepare for persecution, but we're not told to duck when the cannonball-sized hailstones come or the earthquakes come or other deadly circumstances that will kill one half of the earth's population. Another reason, it's a mistake to combine the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Those are two separate events. The most detailed passages about the second coming, Matthew 24 and Revelation 19, they don't even hint of the rapture because the rapture happened seven years earlier. And if these events were the same thing, we'd expect it to be prominently mentioned and mixed together, but they're not. In fact, here's another reason there are differences in purpose between the rapture and the second coming. At the rapture of the church, Jesus comes to reward the believer. We meet in the air with Christ. The glorified saints meet with him. And then we go to where? John 14, to to his father's house. But the second coming, Matthew 25 makes it very clear that Jesus is coming not to reward, but to judge. Very different purposes. So I wanted to lay that background for you. If you're wondering where the church is after chapter 3, we're not here. The second cornerstone to help Revelation 6 and following make sense, the Old Testament prophetic background. This is what makes Revelation 6 understandable. Daniel chapter 2 records a dream given by God to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And in the dream, the king saw a great statue made of different materials. Daniel is called upon to give the interpretation and he explains that the head of gold is the current great Babylonian empire led by Nebuchadnezzar. 
The chest and arms of silver is a kingdom that will defeat the Babylonians, which were the Medes and the Persians, the the Medo-Persian Empire forming an alliance. And they did that in Daniel's lifetime, recorded in Daniel chapter 5. The belly and thighs of bronze would be a kingdom that would defeat the Medo-Persians. We know from history, this is Alexander the Great of Greece. And then there are the, the feet and toes of both clay and iron mixed together. Iron is stronger than gold, silver, or bronze. And as such, the Romans defeated the Greeks in 63 BC. But it was iron mixed with clay, growing progressively weaker. When clay is mixed with iron, it weakens it. But it was weak and ultimately didn't last. But in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he also saw a great stone that struck the image and broke the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold. And this stone became a great mountain that fills the whole earth. What is this stone that strikes the image and destroys it? Well, this is interesting because the Roman Empire never was really conquered in one shot. It just sort of petered out. It just kind of disintegrated over time and collapsed. But Daniel's prophecy says that this empire will be crushed. By whom? By the stone that will bring in a kingdom to last forever. Psalm 118 calls this stone the stone that the builders rejected. 1 Peter 2 calls this stone the cornerstone, the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. The stone is none other than Jesus Christ. But between the crumbling of the iron and clay the Roman Empire, and the coming of the stone to crush all the kingdoms, there is clearly a gap. The Roman Empire crumbled long ago, but the stone hasn't yet come. So what's happening instead? That is the church age. We're in the gap right now. We're between the crumbling toes and the great stone coming. This is the church age. The church was founded during the first Roman Empire, and Christ will return victorious to crush the second Roman Empire yet to be. Now, during Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire never had ten kings at once. Daniel 7, which is a parallel vision to Daniel 2, the kingdoms are envisioned as a lion, bear, leopard, and beast, and the beast had ten horns and ten kings. Daniel 9 tells us that this final kingdom will be united under one great ruler. We know him from from the New Testament as Antichrist. Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. The 70 weeks is universally understood to be 70 weeks of years, 490 years. The very next verse, Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, seven plus 62 weeks of years is 483 years. That decree happened in 444 BC. What does that take us to? It takes us to the weekend that Jesus was crucified. The anointed one. But Daniel 9.26 says, After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come 
shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. The anointed one is cut off. Who's the anointed one? It is Jesus Christ. And he dies on the cross. And the people of the prince who is to come, the people of Antichrist, will destroy Jerusalem. And this happened in 70 AD. Now, obviously, Antichrist didn't do this, but his people did. Who were his people? The Roman Empire. First the first one, then later we get to the second one. So what will Antichrist do? Verse 27 of Daniel 9. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So Antichrist will make a covenant of peace, a covenant meant to be for one week, for seven years. This is the 70th week of Daniel, the famous 70th week. The last half is also known as the Great Tribulation. This, this covenant will include a covenant with Israel, even to the point where Antichrist will make a deal with Israel that, that sacrifices and the festivals and offerings are instituted again. And what's Israel going to think? They're going to think that the kingdom has come, that Messiah is here, that Christ is here. But he'll break this covenant and peace will turn quickly to war after three and a half years. What happens between the 69th and the 70th week of years? There's obviously a pause and this pause is happening right now. The church age in which many are being led to saving faith in Messiah. But at the rapture and the resurrection, the 70th week begins. The clock begins ticking. Seven years until Christ returns. The beast, Antichrist, Covenants with Israel, animal sacrifices begin once again. Apostate Israel will believe that Messiah has come. During this time, a great one world religion will happen. Revelation 17 calls this religious Babylon and this religion will reign. It may be an apostate Christianity or even Judaism, maybe even Islam. And three and a half years in, many things happen at once. Revelation 9, verse 1, Satan is cast from heaven. Not his original rebellion. He's retained access to God in order to accuse humanity. This is why we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. But now he's cast out for good. Three and a half years in, Antichrist surprises the world with forceful conquest. Antichrist breaks covenant with Israel and sets himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem, what both Daniel and Jesus called the abomination of of desolation. Revelation 13, the beast out of the sea, a revived Roman Empire led by Antichrist. That's political Babylon. Revelation 17, the destruction of religious Babylon, the world religion. And now at the three and a half year mark, Antichrist will be, will demand that only he be worshipped. And we'll go from a horrible one world religion to an even more horrible Antichrist worshipping religion. All of that at the three and a half year mark. Now you have an understanding of how to understand Revelation 6. Now this morning we'll cover a section of Revelation that's laid out very symmetrically. We'll look at the first two sets of judgments to fall on the earth. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We're going to talk about judgment this morning. Here's how they happen symmetrically. There's the seven seal judgments and the seals of the scroll we saw earlier this morning. And then there are the seven trumpet judgments. But here's how they're laid out symmetrically. 
you have the seven seals. First, the six seals. First, the first six are opened, the beginning of the tribulation, then the great tribulation. Then you have two interruptions, and then you have the seventh seal being opened. Then we get to the trumpet judgments. You have the first six trumpet judgments. They sound out. Then you have two interruptions again, and then the seventh trumpet sounds. So there is laid out very symmetrically. So you have seven seal judgments, six judgments, two interruptions in the last judgment, seven trumpet judgments, six judgments, two interruptions, and the last interruption, or the last, uh, the last judgment. I can't read every verse. We're doing six chapters this morning, so I'll read some. Just try to track with me if you can. Chapter six, verses one and two. Let's look at the seven seal judgments. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is similar to the white horse of the return of Christ in Revelation 19, but this is a false goodness, a false Messiah. This is the Antichrist. Antichrist has a bow, but no arrows. He's conquering, but he's doing so with diplomacy and with political strategy. And a crown is given to him. The world wants this man to rule. He's the Savior. He'll make everything right. He'll bring peace. He'll bring justice. And for a time, he does it. He does bring peace, peace even in the Middle East. And how does he do this? He does it with politics. He does it with promises. It begins as a peaceful conquest. But he came out conquering and to conquer. It's a verb form that means that in order that he might conquer. In other words, he had bigger plans. Don't all evil political leaders do? He had bigger plans than just to be the world-appointed prime minister. He wanted to be the emperor, and he would be. There will be three and a half years where the world believes that a new world order has begun, and all the Christians are gone, so now the world can be a really great place, right? But it would be a false peace. It was a peace that was never, ever intended to last. And now in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the second living creature in heaven pronounces the second seal a rider on a bright red horse to take peace from the earth. He has a great sword by which people begin killing one another. He's a rider on a red horse. In in the judgment literature in the Bible, red often symbolizes blood and death and destruction. And this rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, to slay with his great sword an endless armory of weapons of some sort to bring cataclysmic war to the earth. Who is this rider on the red horse? This is also Antichrist. We're now at the three and a half year mark beginning in verse three. He started off riding the white horse looking good. Now he's on the red horse of blood and death. He'll start breaking treaties. This will cause world war. Countries are taking sides and quickly arming against one another. And at this point, the third seal is opened by the third living creature. A black horse. And its rider has weighing scales in his hand like you would use at the market to weigh out goods to buy. Verse 6 depicts sky-high food prices. And this black horse 
pictures grimness and despair and death because of famine and food shortage. Now, it's a, it's a partial famine. The worst is yet to come. Verse 6 says, but do not harm the oil and wine, meaning certain things are still available. But agricultural food production, shipping, all that contributes to the distribution and sale of grain, this has been severely damaged now by the war. A quart of wheat will cost a day's wages. In other words, you work for a day for a loaf of bread. The fourth living creature in heaven points out the rider on the pale horse, the fourth seal, in verses 7 and 8, and he's the only rider to be named, and his name is Death. Another rider follows him, Hades, the place where dead people go to await judgment, the judgment of Revelation 20. Death and Hades will be emptied into the lake of fire. And death and Hades are given authority to kill 25% of the earth's population. In today's numbers, that's 2 billion people instantly. Verse 8 says there are four methods of death happening. The sword, uh, murder and rioting that often accompanies war. Famine, world famines are always caused by government oppression. Disease, a pandemic that will make this one not seem like a pandemic. Wild beasts. Wild beasts? Yes. Animals starving to the point that cities will begin to be invaded by roaming wild animals. By the way, these are the same four judgments promised to apostate Israel in Leviticus 26 if they didn't obey God. Same four. That comes under the heading, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So God's going to use these judgments again. But then we get to the fifth seal and it totally changes. In verses 9 and 10, The scene shifts momentarily back to heaven and we see tribulation saints, those who have come to faith in Christ after the church was raptured. How do they come to faith in Christ? Well, the scriptures, of course. They have been, quote, slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. There's no room on earth for Christians now. There's no place for them. But we do see that the Great Tribulation may well be the greatest spiritual revival and harvest in human history. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14 that during the Great Tribulation, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. That is not the church age. That is the age to come. That is the Great Tribulation when the gospel goes to the whole world. But first, those saints who came to Christ during the tribulation are given instructions in verse 8 to wait, to be patient for the coming vengeance of God as these saints cry out for justice. Well, the scene shifts dramatically again. In verses 12 through 17, the sixth seal is opened and what a scene. There's a great earthquake. Earthquakes held great terror for the ancient world and caused immediate devastation. There's a darkened sun. This may be the result of cataclysmic warfare or maybe just a divine cause. The moon is turned to be like blood. The atmosphere is so clouded that perhaps the moon is partly hidden. Stars are falling to the earth. This could be meteors such as the world has never seen. The sky vanished like a scroll. The protection we enjoy from falling things from space starts to disappear. And every mountain and island is removed from its place. The tectonic plates are moving to the extent that mountains are falling and islands are disappearing. Don't go to Hawaii during this time. You don't want to be there. And now all the powerful people 
All the ones who have been vying for power under Antichrist's world system, they recognize that this is not just the natural consequence of war. Chapter 6, verse 15. Look at this with me. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Do they cry out for mercy? No. They idiotically pray to the mountains that are falling on them to put them out of their misery. What an irony, this phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that ironic? For the Christian, there is no wrath of the Lamb. For the Christian, there is only the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Only the worship and the blessing and the favor and the company and the friendship and the protection of the Lamb sacrificed for our sin. You know what that tells us, by the way? If they know that Jesus is the Lamb of God, it means that they know there is a sacrifice for sin and they have refused it. Can I put it this way? All the people who will end up in hell wanted to go there. They did not want Christ, though they knew he was the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of all who would believe. Well, now that the first six seals have been opened, we get two interruptions before the, second, the seventh seal. The first interruption, chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then the tribes of Israel are listed, 12,000 from each tribe. Now remember that God counts the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim as half-tribes because they are the sons of Joseph. And Joseph receives a double blessing from his father Jacob. And in fact, in this list, Ephraim is called the tribe of Joseph. But there are 13 tribes, aren't there? The half-tribe counting system makes it the perfect twelve. But there is a tribe missing. The tribe of Dan is missing here. Why is that? Well, during the time of the Judges, Judges 18 records that the tribe of Dan was the first to organize idolatry in Israel. In 1 Kings 12, it was the territory of Dan that allowed two golden calves to be worshipped instead of God. The writer of Chronicles mentions the tribe of Dan briefly, but then ignores Dan as if they don't exist. Dan was excluded for severe idolatry and not included in this list of the sealed 144,000. But remember, God is a covenant-keeping God. And he said that he would save all the tribes of Israel in the land allotment list in the future Israel of Ezekiel 47 and 48 tells us the land distribution in the millennial kingdom of Christ Ezekiel 48, 1 lists the tribe of Dan first. They're first at the list because God is a God of grace. But they're not here, not yet. 
These 144,000 have specific characteristics, and I'm going to borrow from chapter 14, which speaks of them as well. They're sealed, first of all. It means they have some sort of divine protection. We're not told what that is, but they are protected in some divine manner. Chapter 14, verse 4, tells us that they're Jewish men. These are all males. These are all men. We also know that they're fiercely devoted to Christ. Chapter 14 says they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're fiercely devoted to Christ. We also know that they're just the beginning. This is so important. Chapter 14, verse 4 says, These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. I'll come back to this in a minute. The idea of first fruits. And they're identified by tribe. These are clearly ethnic Jews. There is no symbolism here. There are 12,000 men from Judah, from Reuben, from Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and so forth. These are men, ethnic Jews. But chapter 14 says that they are the first fruits. What does it mean? It means that they'll be instrumental in leading other Jews to faith in Christ. This is the beginnings of the national spiritual redemption of Israel. As God has promised in all the minor prophets, all through Isaiah and Jeremiah and all through the Old Testament. And now it's starting. That's the first interruption. We get a second interruption. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. By the way, just a side note, this is heaven as it is now. They have palm branches. Where do you get palm branches from palm trees? What does that tell us about heaven as it is now? It is a physical place. Side note, I thought I'd point that out. Verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is this second interruption? All the elders, the church in heaven, the four living creatures are falling on their faces in worship, proclaiming God's greatness and glory. Why is this? One of the elders tells John, who this great multitude from every single people on earth are. They're the martyred tribulation saints who have come to faith and have been killed for their love of Christ. And their reward is so precious. Look at chapter 7, verse 17, into the chapter. This is their reward. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The first six seal judgments have fallen on the earth. Now comes the seventh seal of the scroll being opened. And it's a terrible, horrific surprise. The seventh seal is not the end of the wrath of God. The seventh seal turns out to be a package of seven more judgments. The seven trumpet judgments. Now, up until now... There's been a lot of noise in heaven. There's been thunder and singing and shouting in heaven. But now, Revelation 8, verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. What a contrast the thunder and the shouting and the singing and suddenly silence. And John says for about half an hour, just a really long time. 
You know how awkward a silence can be in a crowd. Imagine every believer, every angel silent for minutes or hours, who knows how long. But then you see seven trumpets being brought out. What does that tell you is about to happen? Some noise is getting ready to happen again. And as the seventh seal is opened, verses 3 through 5 pictures all the prayers of all the saints as fragrant incense before the altar of God. And the prayers are now mixed, as it were, with fire from the altar and thrown to the earth. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What are these prayers? the imprecatory prayers of the saints of the ages, the cries for justice and the wrath against the unrepentant wicked are being answered. If you have ever prayed prayers asking God to do justice on the earth, they're being saved up to all be poured out at once. And I don't know if you can see yours going out. Oh, there goes mine on the way down. But now that brings us to the second set of judgments, the trumpet judgments. And once again, we'll see six trumpet judgments followed by two interruptions, followed by the seventh trumpet judgment. Now to help us understand the the seven trumpets, I might point out that radical environmentalists are concerned with problems that are either real or imagined concerning the earth. These problems include global warming, renewable energy, ocean systems, electronic and nuclear waste, water quality, a land rush due to population growth, biodiversity, conservation, genetically modified food, deforestation, all kinds of problems. They say that the earth is in imminent danger. Don't be shocked, but I agree with them. But whatever environmental problems we may or may not have, earth is not in danger from human mismanagement of resources. The earth is in danger from the impending judgment of God. And Revelation 8 will be a huge disappointment to those trying to save the earth. And can I tell you this, by the way? The earth is not ours to save. We read a moment ago, the earth is the Lord's. It's not ours to save. Because of sin, a flood of worldwide judgments is coming in the form of the trumpet judgments. Heaven is silenced as the wrath of God will now go beyond even the first six seals. Seven angels have seven trumpets. And as each one blows his trumpet, a terrible judgment from God falls upon the earth in answer to the prayers of all the saints from all the ages for justice. The first four are in one vision, chapter 8, verse 2, then I saw, and the last three are three woes brought upon the earth. Let's just walk through these. Trumpet number one, chapter 8, verse 7, The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and the third of the earth was burned up and the third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. This trumpet sounds familiar, doesn't it? This trumpet resembles the seventh plague on Egypt when God was rescuing Israel, Exodus 9. Some think this is the result of nuclear war, but the judgments here are clearly coming from God, not the result of war. And how do you make hail happen? That is not from war. That is from God. But the earthquake of verse 5, the earthquake of that magnitude could easily trigger volcanic eruptions around the world. And that could trigger violent thunderstorms, producing the massive hail as well. 
And whatever's coming down out of the sky, the hail and fire is mixed with blood. This could be the actual blood of men and animals dying, or it could be contaminated water. It could be picturing the raining of lava. All we know is it's something red and something terrible, and we don't want to see it. And what's the result? Well, you have raging fires all over the earth. It'll make the ground unusable for crops. The forests are destroyed. The earth will be a mess. You'll have massive shortages of everything that grows on trees. The shortage of grass will mean the death of livestock. And the atmosphere is going to be harmed as well since oxygen is replenished by the plant life of the earth. Then you have the second trumpet. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. A great mountain burning with fire. This doesn't explicitly say it's a meteor, but that's probably the best guess. And they probably didn't have really a word for meteor in John's time. But this time, it's not a science fiction movie, is it? This time it's real. And technology will certainly have told the world that it's coming. And a third of the sea became blood. The ocean has been a source of blessing for the earth, food, travel, recreation, but now it becomes a mess of death, killing those on the ocean and those in the ocean, a third of them. So how do you prevent this environmental disaster? Well, you don't. Instead, you express sorrow to the Lord for your rebellion and your sin, and you come to faith in the King of Kings who is showing His dominion on the earth how do you prevent this environmental disaster? Make sure you're not here when it happens. Can I put it this way? You don't prevent, you repent. That's the only solution. The third trumpet. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. Lots of stuff falling from the sky at this point, isn't there? Blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This great star is something different than the great mountain. The great mountain stayed intact and hit in one spot, but the great star burned up in the atmosphere and spread poison of some sort to a third of the earth's drinking water. The name of the star is called Wormwood. Wormwood is known for its bitterness. It's thought to be poisonous. And in fact, Deuteronomy 29, Amos 5, and Amos 6 use Wormwood as a metaphor for sin that pollutes. So it's something that gets into the water. So now the Lord, in just the first uh, three trumpet judgments here, he's systematically burning the earth, poisoning the water, polluting the air, and he's doing a lot of it with fire. Like all the major things that make up the world. What is God doing here? He's knocking down that slim security that mankind has developed in worshiping the earth itself. I I, I think those people saying, let's save planet earth, who are getting pounded with hailstones and fire coming down from heaven, I think they're going to be a joke at that point. The question is going to be, how? 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 People will have nowhere to run or hide except to trust in the Lord. That brings us to the fourth trumpet, verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. 
Right now, we're kind of in the thirds. First, a third of the green trees and grass, then a third of marine life and shipping, now a third of the heavenly bodies. The sun, moon, and stars are struck. Some sort of partial and temporary eclipse. This will cause temperatures to drop drastically worldwide, so much for global warming. And disruption in weather patterns and tides. Isaiah predicted this in Isaiah 13. Joel predicted it in Joel 2. Amos predicted it in Amos 9. Amos 8, rather. But this is temporary because in chapter 16, God will increase the heat of the sun. Global warming is back, powered by God himself. A little interesting side note here. On the fourth day of creation, God made the sun, moon, and stars. And the fourth trumpet judgment is the removal of the blessing of those heavenly bodies by blocking their light from the earth. By the way, part of the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars is to be available to God, to send messages to mankind that God is working. Genesis 1.14 says the sun, moon, and stars are for signs and seasons. Well, this is a sign, isn't it? When you can't see them anymore, something is happening. The next three trumpet judgments get a special announcement. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. It's best to understand this eagle as an angel and he pronounces three woes, an indicator of terror and horror and fear to those who dwell on the earth, specifically to those who reject the gospel of Christ. You remember that Revelation 6, 15 through 17 tells us that they know that these disasters are coming from God and yet most won't repent. John used six verses or so to describe the first four trumpet judgments. Now in chapter 9, he's going to devote 11 verses to trumpet number 5. This is a call to the person toying with Christianity that you should repent now. Listen carefully. Revelation 9, according to our timeline, could be happening as soon as four years from today if the rapture happened today. This is a call to repent. Chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Then the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. The star fallen from heaven. This is the chief of the fallen angels, Satan himself. This isn't his original fall and rebellion as recorded in Isaiah 14. At this current time, as we mentioned a moment ago, Satan has been given access to heaven. We know this from the book of Job in that he accuses the followers of God. This is why we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So what is this fall? Well, this fall is the same one that we'll see in Revelation 12 in which Satan is now banned from his access to heaven during the Great Tribulation. No more access. And so this star, Satan, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit We get our our word abyss from this word. When Jesus was about to cast the legion of demons out of the demoniac in the country of the Gerasenes, you remember this, they begged him not to send them to the abyss, the place of torment for many of the demons. 
that all throughout history, most of the fallen angels have been held captive, awaiting a final chance. You think our world seems demonic now? Most demons are in the abyss right now. There's only a few active in the world. This is where Satan will be imprisoned during the thousand-year reign of Christ, Revelation 20. The, the abyss is a different place than hell. Hell is reserved for the very end of time. And so God, in His sovereignty, now gives Satan permission to release the greatest outpouring of demonic horror the earth has ever seen in human history as part of the wrath of God. Verses 3 through 5, the smoke of the abyss gives way to hordes of locusts who are like scorpions. They're not to harm the vegetation. Only those, verse 4, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're only harming the unsaved. This torment is the last five months, but it won't kill anyone. Verse 6 just says they'll wish they were dead. These probably aren't literal locusts, although the physical features are described. These are demons from the abyss. These are demons, listen carefully, these are the demons who invaded the earth before the flood of Noah. And they're now consigned to the abyss, but now they're going to be released. How do we know this? Jude 6 says that they'll be released on the day of judgment. And this is that day. That is the day to torment all the people that Satan has fooled into worshiping Antichrist. And listen, you've probably read about this in history. All throughout history, mankind has believed in evil spirits and dreaded them and worshipped them in a vain attempt to appease the demons. Where did this come from? Well, this originated with the revelation of demonic powers to mankind before the flood. We tend to laugh most of it off as mythology and, and legend. But now the worst nightmares of all the pagans of all history become a reality. Complete spiritual helplessness and the earth flooded with countless demons and demonic power. Verses 7 through 10 gives a bizarre description of the physical manifestation of these demons and there's no reason to believe they aren't visible. And when I say they aren't locusts, I mean they aren't the little two-inch bugs that you can squish. There's something different. Listen to this description. They have crowns of gold, human faces, women's hair, sharp teeth, iron-like breastplates, loud fluttering wings like the noise of chariots and horses, tails with scorpion stingers. This is a nightmare that you can't wake up from. And it's real. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. They have a king over them. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. John wants to make sure that we understand this demonic warrior king, Abaddon, his Hebrew name, destruction. Apollyon, his Greek name, destroyer. Now, he is not the same as the star in verse 1, Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. Apollyon is the king of the abyss, a prince under Satan, who is the worst of the worst of the worst and has been waiting for thousands of years to lead his hordes of demonic nightmares onto the earth. And by God's supernatural intervention, Apollyon will be able to see who is saved and will force all of his demons to pass over them. And they'll be able to see who does not know Christ and go and torment them. Can you imagine what sort of Division this is going to cause on earth for five months when there are some people being tormented and others not. The demons weren't permitted to kill, only to torture. 
but now death returns. The sixth trumpet judgment now brings death at the highest rate since the drowning of all mankind at the great flood. The wrath of God is intensifying. And yet there's still hope for the unbeliever. There's still a call to saving faith if they'll turn quickly to Christ. In verse 13, the sixth trumpet is blown. A voice from the four horns, the four corners of the golden altar of heaven cries out. Verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. What is this? Well, these are fallen angels. They don't, holy angels don't have to be held captive. These are fallen angels, mighty angels who have been restrained for all time, prepared for what verse 15 says, this moment, the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Why is the river Euphrates so significant? It's a huge part of geography in the Bible. Genesis 2 indicates this river flowing from the Garden of Eden. It's the location that Satan first came to tempt and torment mankind. The inheritance of Israel was given to Abraham that Israel would receive all the land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, Genesis 15. And in Revelation 16, the river Euphrates is going to dry up to prepare the way for great armies to march to Armageddon. And so Euphrates is important. And what's the result of the destruction unleashed by these angels. Verse 18, one-third of mankind will die. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Already, the fourth seal judgment, Revelation 6, one-fourth of mankind has been killed. Do simple math. Kill one-fourth, then kill one-third. Half of humanity has now been wiped out by the wrath of God. How do these agents of the wrath of God do this? A demonic army that John attempts to number. Verse 16, the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So what's the number? 200 million. It's interesting that he heard the number. What does it mean? It means they're loud. 10,000, twice. Somehow he comes up with 200 million. Is that how many there are? I think the point is that they're countless. I don't think John is is multiplying here. I think he's just saying there's more than you can possibly count. It's interesting to me that over the years there's been quite a debate over the identity of this army. That's the fallacy of trying to use newspaper headlines to try to interpret scripture. It doesn't work. There's one sign that we know as the church that comes next before the great tribulation begins. Just one. Only one that's certain, and that's the rapture of the church. So as much as you want to say, well, it might be this or it might be that, this is not what you think. Because I hate to say it, but this is not a human army. You cannot assign this to to Russia, as was popular in the 80s, or China, as is more popular now. The context of chapter 9 is demonic power released to torment the earth. The leaders are, are demon generals. The emphasis is not on the riders, by the way, the mounted troops. The emphasis is on the horses. Do you sort of get the feeling like I'm not able to picture this? Yes, it's, it's beyond horrific. It's beyond description. 
Earlier in chapter 9, the locusts are like horses. In fact, it's the horse doing the killing. Their description is much more like the description of dragons. Verse 18, by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. That's the stuff of children's books and nightmares. Where do we first encounter dragons in history? In the Bible. You find them in the Bible. They're created. I don't know if they're breathing fire, but this says there's horses going around breathing fire. Pretty horrific. Tails like serpents with heads. Why is this wrath of God being poured out on earth? Verses 20 and 21 tell us. Demon worship, murder, occultic practices, which includes false versions of Christianity, by the way, sexual immorality, and theft. Why? Because the world has become like the pre-flood world. Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why is the world so wicked now? You ready for this? Because the church is gone. The church is the only thing holding the wrath of God back right now from a human standpoint. Do you understand that? So when governments try to shut down churches, they're doing it to their own harm because God's going to shut down the church eventually and just take us away. During the Great Tribulation, food and water is going to be scarce. Believers won't be able to participate in the world economy. Revelation 13, financial systems will be in collapse near the end. Infrastructures decimated. People will be responding in desperation according to their nature. They're begging demons for help. The very ones killing them. They're murdering one another for food and clothing and water. They're stealing from one another just for survival. But the real believers will be obvious. In fact, Jesus will know them and he's going to reward them. When he returns, the surviving believers will be gathered together. Matthew 25 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I'll tell you who they're serving in our last message. There's the first six trumpet judgments. Now we get our first interruption. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This mighty angel is descended from heaven to earth, reflecting the glory of God, and then seven thunders sound. But verse 4 says to seal them up. John was about to write them down, but the voice from heaven calls out, do not write it down. And in the angel's hand is a little scroll. Not the same scroll as chapter 5. This is different. What are the seven thunders? Well, they're specific and special enough to use the definite article, the seven thunders. The thunders are articulated speech, something understandable, something that John was about to write down. He wasn't going to write down, boom. It was going to be actual words. Something was being spoken. It was intelligible. 
The Greek here is that there, there is speech, there are words. What are the seven thunders? Well, what else have we seen in sevens so far in Revelation? Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments. Next, we'll, next time we'll see seven bowl judgments. There's a high probability that these are seven thunder judgments, but they're not to be revealed. The apostle John alone witnessed the seven thunder judgments and he went to his grave with that knowledge. This is like God saying to the earth, you think the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments were bad? Wait for the thunder judgments. Well, what are they? I'm not going to tell you. It's going to be bad. And now the mighty angel takes a solemn oath in verses five through seven with his right hand raised. He swears by God himself that the mystery of God would be revealed. The prophecies of judgment by all the prophets of the Old Testament would be fulfilled soon when the seventh trumpet sounds. What is this mystery of God? Well, we'll find out in a moment, but first we have to finish this first interruption and look at the second interruption to the trumpet judgments. Verse eight God himself commands John to take this little scroll from the angel. The scroll is open and it's readable. Verse 2 says this. He could see it. It's open. Verse 9 says that John is to take the scroll and to eat it. And it will be sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. This is the same scroll. The same scroll given to the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years earlier. Ezekiel 2 verse 10 calls them words of lamentation and mourning and woe. To eat the scroll, as with Ezekiel, was to fully digest it, to comprehend its contents, that Ezekiel was given to eat as well, which simply means to fully read and comprehend and digest it, as it were. It's sweet because it's the word of God, but it's bitter because the actual fulfillment of judgment is terrifying. Or to put it this way, the word of God is sweet to those who receive Christ and bitter to those who refuse. And the result of eating the scroll, chapter 10, verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is essentially a recommissioning of John. John, hang in there. There's a lot more to go. We're not even halfway done yet. To keep going no matter how terrible the judgments. Remember, he's witnessing these judgments. Christ is near to defeating the powers of darkness for good, but that brings us to our second interruption to the trumpet judgments. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, describes the giving over of Jerusalem and the temple to wickedness for 42 months, the last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation proper. But during this time, verse 3 of chapter 11, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4 says these are the two olive trees and two lampstands of Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4.14 says these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So these two witnesses are prophesied all the way back in Zechariah chapter 4. And these two witnesses to Christ are mighty men. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Those are mighty men. 
All during the terrible reign of Antichrist, these two unstoppable witnesses are the thorn in the side of Antichrist's world system. And they're witnessing of Christ specifically in Jerusalem for three and a half years. But when they fulfill God's plan, the beast from the bottomless pit, perhaps Apollyon, will kill them and their bodies will lie in the street of Jerusalem. In fact, verses 8 and 9 says that Peoples from all over the world will mock them and party at their demise, even exchanging gifts like it's some sort of sick Christmas. How the world hates the gospel and these men have tormented humanity with the gospel of Christ for three and a half years and now they're dead and people celebrate. Who are these men? If they sound familiar, you know your Old Testament. These are men who bring down Heavenly fire, they stop rain for three and a half years like Elijah. These are men who turn water to blood and bring plagues like Moses. In fact, I think we can make a very good case that these men are, in fact, Moses and Elijah returned to earth to minister once again. Now, if you say that that's nuts, let me give you some good reasons. At the transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew 17, Jesus appeared with two men and spoke to them. Who was it? Moses and Elijah. What were they talking about? We don't know, but they were talking about something big, apparently. And this may have been it. Both the Old Testament and Jewish tradition expect the return of Moses and Elijah. Did you know that? Deuteronomy 18, God told Moses that a prophet like Moses will come. This is fulfilled in Christ himself. But Jews have often believed this is speaking of Moses himself returning. And we know that many prophecies in scriptures have multiple layers of fulfillment. The last promise of the Old Testament, Matthew 4, 5, Malachi 4, 5, rather, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Jesus said that John the Baptist fulfilled the spirit of Elijah as a forerunner, but the Jews rejected Christ, and so we're still expecting Elijah. Jews today still expect the return of Elijah. Those who celebrate Passover still leave an empty chair expecting Elijah. We know this also. Both Moses and Elijah left the earth in unique ways. Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of what? You guessed it, fire. Moses was taken alone by God to die on Mount Pisgah, a completely unique occurrence. He died alone in the presence of God. He was buried by God himself in a completely secret grave. And sometime after the death of Moses, the book of Jude tells us that the archangel Michael was in a battle with Satan over the body of Moses. Why? Why would Satan want the body of Moses? So that he couldn't be brought back here. Who better to preach to God's beloved Israel than the prophets they've longed to see? Who better to bring back than Moses and Elijah? But now they're dead in the streets of Jerusalem. As they say, but wait, there's more. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. A personal two-man rapture. This is Elijah's second ride to heaven. (laughs) 
And suddenly there's a massive earthquake in Jerusalem, a tenth of the city crumbling. 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake. Who are these people? This is very important. In Greek it says there's 7,000 named men, meaning they are officials. They are government officials of the Antichrist regime. They're killed. When the tenth of the city fell, they fell selectively on Antichrist men. And now the Jews in Jerusalem had great fear. And verse 13 says they gave glory to the God of heaven. Listen carefully. The parallel ideas of fearing God and giving Him glory are found four other times in Revelation. And every time it refers to genuine repentance and salvation. All of a sudden, Jerusalem is filled with saved Jews. God is restoring Israel. In fact, we'll see in chapter 12 that he's already saving many in other ways. But now Jerusalem is made up of followers of Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham. And now the world is just days or weeks away from the return of Christ. But what is the mystery of God? What is the mystery that the angels swore by God himself to reveal that which has been summoned and announced by the prophets for millennia and was announced back in chapter 10. For 2,000 years, believers have prayed, Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The angel is saying, Get ready, here comes the answer to that prayer. The seventh trumpet sounds. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the moment when Christ says enough and he gets ready to invade his planet and judge those who have been breathing his air, eating his food, drinking his water, blaspheming his name, and killing his people. Christ will not be a mystery anymore. How do we know this? All the way back in Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And at this announcement of the seventh trumpet, verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Back in chapter 6, the question is asked, who can stand against the wrath of God? Answer, only the one who will submit to Christ as the coming King of kings and Lord of lords, you may have recognized the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of our Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. What does that make you want to say according to Handel's Messiah? Hallelujah. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Let's pray.
Our Father, the King is coming, and we look forward to that time. But how horrible the judgments to fall on the earth must happen first. Oh Lord, anyone hearing this message, I pray that they would be terrified of these judgments and run to the safety and security of the cross. For the church of Jesus Christ will undergo none of these. We will be safe and secure. We will be safely home with you in the security of heaven as it is now. And we will be, as we have sung, almost home. But now we will be home. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who this day does not know Christ. Let them run to the cross to avoid the judgment that is coming and to receive instead the eternal life promised through the blood of Christ. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.